0: Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 to 39 and they're so relevant for the moment so as I read them just think about the relevance of them for our situations today. Romans 8 verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this if God is for us who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life,
1: It fell to me uh, two weeks ago to introduce the current series of talks in these streamed services from Norwich Central Baptist Church. They're set against the backdrop of the words of Jesus, remain in me and I will remain in you. Because he wants each person to experience every blessing, every spiritual blessing, He says, stay connected to me. He claims to be the source of life, of life in all its fullness, and that our greatest good lies in being in relationship with him. We must first get connected to him, and second, we must stay connected. Having taken the first step of committing our lives to him, We must continue that journey throughout life, following him wherever that may take us. So these talks are exploring what it is to be in Christ. And the subject of my talk this morning is In Christ, Loved. A few moments ago, we shared together in bread and wine. They're symbols that Jesus himself chose to use to help us to remember him. To remember how he demonstrated his love for us by putting himself in the place that secured our highest good. He took the punishment that we deserve. Through his sacrificial death upon the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. He secured for us a reconnection with our God, the God who made us for relationship with himself. Before I explore this a little more, let me give you the framework upon which this series of talks is constructed. My first talk was introductory in nature, centered upon the metaphor used by Jesus in his teaching of the gardener and the vine and its branches. And last week in his talk about being chosen in Christ, Paul John began with the teaching from the New Testament that reaches back to the beginning before the beginning. The plans and purposes of God were framed before ever this physical universe, came into existence and continued to be worked out in this time and space continuum that we experience. When these talks conclude, we shall consider the end beyond the end. How those plans formulated in the eternal past come to fruition in the eternal future. And in the meantime, We will take up just a few of the many aspects of being in Christ that are revealed to us in the New Testament writings that center on the present reality for the follower of Jesus. We will look at the present in the present. While last week Paul spoke of the beginning before the beginning, he also spoke of being in Christ chosen. He began to explore the implications of God's choice, how that choice works out in the present. Those chosen by God are chosen for a purpose, to be spiritually fruitful, to be obedient, and to be holy. In fact, this is how those who are chosen by God can be identified. They become followers of Jesus. Increasingly, they become more like Jesus as they mature spiritually, and they continue to do so until the end of life. I found this talk particularly difficult to prepare. The subject of love in the context of Christian belief is a very rich vein from which to mine God's love for us and our love for God can be found in many places throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. So what part should I turn to? What can I possibly say that has not been said many times before? I bring nothing new. But I pray that God will take what I say to come to those who already trust in Jesus in a fresh way, or at an opportune time. For anyone listening, watching this, as an outsider looking in, I trust that you will have reason to explore Christian belief and practice further. I want to take my starting point, the God who is revealed to us in the teaching of Jesus. It's impossible to represent God by anything that the human mind can conceive. This simple image is an attempt to put together what Jesus said of the Father and of himself as the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would reveal more of the truth after his departure from this world. So the other New Testament writers built upon Jesus' words. And then in later centuries, yet others grappled with these things as they examined that teaching and asked questions such as, who or what is God? Special language had to be adopted to allow people to communicate with one another about things which otherwise are beyond comprehension. Out of such considerations, simple but inadequate images such as these were used to try and illustrate what God had revealed of himself. It tries to convey the truth about God as being, in essence, one of those special words, in essence, one, yet three persons, another of the special words. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. What is revealed about the essence of God is true of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet, as we look carefully into the handbook of faith that the Holy Spirit has given us, each person has an identifiable role in relation to the others as the eternal God works out his purposes. Here is another image. It tries to express the intercommunication between the three persons. The teaching that this image is based upon is the statement by one who was one of Jesus' closest followers when he wrote, God is love. God's essential nature is love. But love is a relational word. Love requires an object. There has to be another to love. Perfect love is love that is reciprocated, love that is returned as well as given. And this image attempts to convey that. The three persons within the one God each give love and receive love. God is love. This is the divine triangle, the divine love triangle. Each of the persons seeks to honor the others human love triangles are destructive and damaging. While the word love is used in that context, it is often self-centered and self-absorbed. Divine love looks away from self and is directed to the other. It is our understanding, therefore, that there was no need in God to love and be loved outside of himself. Instead, it was a matter of the divine will to bring into being the whole created order, all things spiritual and all things material, and to establish relationship with these. This is where we come into the picture, to be in Christ is to be brought into a relationship with the God who is love. Hence the title of this talk, In Christ, Loved. The follower of Jesus doesn't get absorbed into God. He or she remains a discreet individual, yet becoming the beneficiary of the loving purposes of the Father, the Son, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me now make an attempt to look at the teaching presented by Paul the Apostle in his letter to the first century Christians at Rome that Kathy read to us earlier, that part from Romans chapter eight, verse 31. And straight away we can see that it's not a good place to start because Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to this? We've jumped into the middle of his argument, so how can we possibly respond? We have nothing to say unless we know what came before. Unfortunately, the case that the apostle presents in this letter is very closely argued And it starts immediately after his initial greetings in the letter. However, as I've already grappled with the nature of God this morning, let me try and summarize the case that Paul presents here. That comes from chapter 1, verse 18 onwards. Paul sets out God's great plan, his master plan, to be reconciled with rebellious Human beings, what he calls the gospel, the good news. And there are the stages that he presents in his argument. <clears throat> he addresses God's judgment of all people for their sin, both those <clears throat> without the law and those who had the law. And then he turns to God's call. To all, to repent, to turn away from sin, and to turn in faith to the Savior whom he has provided, Jesus. What follows is God's justification or pardon of all who believe in Jesus. And then we have God's sanctification of all believers through the work of God's Spirit which means that they become more like Jesus. And finally, we have God's glorification of all believers when they're brought into the presence of Jesus to be with him forever. So having set out his case step by step, Paul asked the first of a number of questions. What then shall we say, in response to this. Because he's writing a letter and not having direct contact with this group of Christian believers, he anticipates what they are likely to say by way of response. He knows that they're likely to point out the day-to-day problems that they face as Christians in an environment often hostile to them. They increasingly feel like aliens in a familiar world. Life is hard, and for some, that involves suffering. They come up against opposition on all sides. Accusations are directed at them. A sense of isolation comes over them from time to time. Paul has argued his case with both clear logic and with passion. But what does this good news have to say which can address these very real issues? Anticipating this response, the apostle turns to these matters by pointing out those things in which a Christian can rejoice even when in the middle of suffering and hardship. And what he writes as being true for those Christians in first-century Rome, is as true for us in this present time. Christians down the centuries have faced the same problems, and Paul writes about God's overarching plan and purpose. From the position that these things happened at a moment in time, but the consequences re-echo until the end of time and beyond. He poses a question on the subject of opposition. Who can be against us? In the light of all that he has explained of the action God has taken to enable sinners to come into a right relationship with him, Where is opposition to come from? The question is left hanging in the air unanswered. Because rather than focus on the opposition, Paul looks at what is lined up in the defense. And he makes three points. Firstly, God is for us. Where does ultimate power lie? Forceful though human powers may be, crushing though circumstances may prove to be, fearful though spiritual powers may appear to be, God is for us. Our defender supports us by the power of his love. We are not removed from the struggle But he stands with us. And the opposition has the effect of making us stronger. We noted before that our our reading started in the middle of Paul's reasoning. Had we started just a few sentences earlier, and that was my choice, (laughs) we would have read words that are appropriate here in chapter 8, verse 28. And we know... That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is for us. Secondly, he gave up his son for us. We've already considered these words this morning as we shared in bread and wine. We've also directed our thinking to the nature of this God. One God, three persons, a union of perfect love. The reason we did so was that we might appreciate the more what is said here. God gave up his son for us. He delivered him over to death, for us. What love? Love tested to the absolute limit for us. It's a measure of how sinful sin is. If to overcome it, such strains were put on the divine love. God is love. That love overcame all opposition to secure our eternal well-being. Where might any opposition you face come from? Remember this, God gave up his son for us. As if that were not enough, thirdly, God will continue giving to us. In giving up his son for us, He gave the best that he could give, but that was only the beginning. So Paul argues from the greater degree to the lesser. If God did not hold back on delivering his son over to death, he will not hold back on anything. He will continue to freely provide all that is necessary for us. He will graciously give us all things. We're not removed from the struggle But he stands with us, and that opposition has the effect of making us stronger. And our love for him deepens as we draw upon the reserves he makes available to us. Apart from opposition, the Christian may have to face accusation leveled against him or her. Sometimes that is well-deserved because we are still prone to do and say some foolish things that do not reflect well on us and damage the reputation of our God in the minds of those of other faiths or none. Paul, as he set out his case in this letter, has occasionally evoked the interaction of the courtroom and he does so again here. The next question that Paul asks is this. Who can condemn us? And here I'll make a, a remark that you may have heard before. If you were ever in a court of law accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Whatever allegations are leveled at us by any fellow human being, or any legal forum, forum, our appeal will ultimately be heard in the highest of all courts. The question here is, who can condemn us? Who can point the finger of accusation? Who is without sin so as to be able to sit in judgment on us? And in answer to this, Paul again makes three remarks. Firstly, God pardons us the charge is levelled at those whom God has chosen. He, therefore, is the one who has to defend his choice of us. He is the one who justifies us, who pardons us. We're not without guilt, but we cannot be charged once the punishment has been exacted. In another place, the apostle communicating with another group of Christians wrote, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. God pardons us. Secondly, we are pardoned because God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom price that was on our heads having been paid by Jesus at the cross was accepted. We know it was so because Jesus was raised from death to life. And thirdly, Jesus has been reinstated in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, the place of highest honor. In that place, he intercedes for us. He speaks up for us. He defends us. Who can condemn us? Who can point the finger of accusation? Who is without sin so as to be able to sit in judgment on us? Only Jesus, yet he speaks in our defense. In another place in the New Testament, we read that Jesus is able to save completely because he always lives to intercede for those who come to God through him. God receives the advocacy of Jesus on our behalf. Ultimately, all accusations fail. God pardons us, God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus, God receives the advocacy of Jesus. Another thing that the Christian may experience is isolation. The sense that he or she is facing difficulties alone, that God seems distant and appears to be letting him or her struggle on without support. In anticipation of this response, Paul asks this question, who can separate us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? He begins to list some of the obstacles in the Christian's path to cut him or her off from the help of others. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. Faced alone, these difficulties tend to suggest to the mind of one in distress that even God has left their cries for help without response. Paul is certainly drawing upon his own experiences as a Christian missionary to write this list. In another letter, he relates the things he had been subject to in his years of service for Jesus Christ. Great endurance, troubles, hardships, and distresses, beatings, imprisonments, and riots, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, Known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. It's not just a catalog of his many troubles. Each negative is balanced by a positive from beginning or sorry from beneath this crushing load of difficulties from within the crucible of his afflictions comes the question which is more than a question it is a cry of deep conviction who shall separate us from the love of christ in his formative years paul had been a student of those scriptures which we call the old testament In them are examples of those who suffered despite living a moral and an upright life by the standards set by God. The example of Job springs to mind. Paul draws upon one of the poems in the book of Psalms to show that this narrow path has been trodden many times by many before him. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, yet in spite of... Of all these troubles and hardship, Paul retains this conviction that God lets nothing come between us and him. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are on the winning side. When all the results are in, we will be out on top. God lets nothing come between us and him. What do you fear above all else? Death? Death did not defeat Jesus. Those who are in Christ will find the grip of death loosened and they too will rise to new life. Life? Life has many troubles, for some more than others. But God lets nothing come between us and him. We are in a spiritual warfare. Our enemies are not always flesh and blood. Need we fear? God lets nothing come between us and him. Are our troubles mounting up? And such glimpse of the future we may have suggests nothing better is on its way. Disheartened? God lets nothing come between us and him. The Christians in first-century Rome saw at first-hand in their streets the overwhelming power of the state. They were beginning to see the wave of violence heading towards those who gave their oath of allegiance to Christ rather than to Caesar. Were they afraid? God lets nothing come between us and him. In this world, with all its troubles... Political upheavals, pandemics, climate change, nuclear threat, religious intolerance. Do we sit uncomfortably? God lets nothing come between us and him. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. In Christ Jesus. All who are in Christ are loved with an all-powerful eternal love. We are not removed from the struggle. He stands with us to assure us that we are not alone. We know that in all things God works for our good. God loves us in Christ Jesus. Who can be against us since God is for us? God loves us in Christ Jesus. Who can condemn us since God has pardoned us? God loves us in Christ Jesus. Who can separate us from his love? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you have any reassurance that this is true for you this morning? Have you drawn near to God And found that he has drawn near to you. You may yet not need to come to him and put matters straight between you and him. If there are matters over which you feel guilt, come to him and ask for forgiveness. It's possible to get right with God because Jesus, by his death on the cross, has paid the price to cover all our sins. It is possible to know and experience the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Get connected. Stay connected.